Okay. Well, turn with me to Matthew 9. Uh, we Before we left, before I left, uh, we had been studying verses 18 to 26. We didn't finish. But because of the amount of time between then and now, and knowing how short the human memory span is, I'm going to uh, do a little bit of review this morning. In fact, probably a little more than I normally would do just to get us back up to speed, and then we'll finish out the passage. Uh, so let's read verses 18 to 26 again. Matthew 9. While he was saying these things to, to them, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. At once the woman was made well. When Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder, he said, Leave, for the girl has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. This news spread throughout all that land. Now this is a passage about Jesus' power over death. As you know, all know, we're living in a dying world where all of us face the inevitability of death. Since the fall of man, as recorded in Genesis 3, there has been a curse on this earth. And that curse has sent the earth and all of its inhabitants spiraling into an endless cycle of tears and pain and sickness and death. In fact, we face these things constantly. And death is horrible. Death is stunning. That's what sin has done to this world. Death is the curse in action. But God didn't want it to be so. Sin was not God's purpose for man. All things in the world were created for the good of man and the blessing of man, but man sinned. And so the question is, who can reverse the curse? Uh, who can destroy disease and pain and sorrow, tears and death? Well, the prophets said there would be a Messiah, a Prince of Peace, a King, and he would do it. He would have the power to bring back the wholeness to life. And thus, when Jesus came into the world, he demonstrated that power. Uh, he raised the dead, he forgave sin, he multiplied food, he calmed storms, he cast out demons. He demonstrated during his first coming all of those things that would be true of the great and glorious coming kingdom. The miracles of Jesus were the verification of his power to reverse the curse, the verification of his power to establish the kingdom. Now, as far so far as we've studied through this book, we have seen that in chapters 8 and 9, Matthew gives us nine primary miracles that he focuses on to explain Jesus' authority over the physical, the spiritual, and the moral world. And he gives them to us in groups of three. Uh, in chapter 8, the first group of miracles dealt with disease. Then in the second set of miracles dealt with disorder, the storm, the demoniac, and sin. And now we come to the third group, and now he deals with death. So Matthew presents Jesus' authority over these three areas, disease, disorder, and death. 
And this is the climax. Jesus can raise the dead. So there are three more miracles. The first one is actually a miracle within a miracle, but there are three separate miracles. The first one, raising the dead. The second one, giving sight to the blind. The third, giving speech to a mute, demon-possessed man. And so as we go through this, not only will we see Jesus' power over death, but we will also see how Jesus responded to people in need. All of his tenderness, all of his sensitivity, all of his gentleness, all of his openness, all that he was in loving kindness is here and all of his power is here. I notice that, note, notice that the, the three segments all have to do with touch. Uh, the synagogue official requested Jesus touch his daughter and heal her. The woman with the hemorrhage touched Jesus and then Jesus touched the little girl and raised her back to life. So that's how I have run, done the outline here. The first is the requested touch, the second is the unexpected touch, and the third is the resurrecting touch. And so we looked last time at the requested touch, verse 18. It says, while he was saying these things to them, in other words, while he's finishing up, answering the scribes and Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist, that was what we studied before this, says a synagogue official came and bowed down before him. Now both Mark and Luke tell us that this man was Jairus. Uh, Matthew only says he was an official and he uses a word which means ruler, magistrate, judge, official. Uh, however, both Mark and Luke use a word which tells us that Jairus was the chief official. He was the highest ranking ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum. He would have been responsible for the total administration and operation of the synagogue and supervised the worship services and oversaw the work of the other synagogue elders. Jairus, as the leading representative of the religious establishment in Capernaum, would be expected to lead the charge in opposition to Jesus in that area. Uh, the religious establishment was dead set against Christ. They fought him tooth and nail all the way through his life. And this guy was looked upon as the epitome of that opposition. And yet, he comes to Jesus. Uh, verse 18, he came and bowed down before him. Now that word in the Greek means to worship. It means to prostrate oneself before someone in submission and worship. Jairus worshiped Jesus. Well, whatever made him do that? Well, I'll tell you why. It's very easy. Verse 18, he said to Jesus, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Now, Matthew's account is very brief. Uh, Mark and Luke's accounts are larger. Luke tells us <clears throat> that the first time Jairus spoke to Jesus, he said, My daughter is dying. But while Jesus was headed to his house, someone came from his house and informed him that his daughter had died. And so he shouldn't bother Jesus any further. So apparently Matthew records only the second statement by Jairus to Jesus in which he told Jesus, my daughter has just died. Uh, Matthew just condenses it all, leaving out some of the preliminaries. Mark and Luke tell us that Jairus' daughter was 12 years old. And a Jewish girl had her bat mitzvah at 12 years old. So she had just reached the flower of womanhood in that culture. Now, why was Jairus willing to publicly go to Jesus? Because he didn't care about 
social pressure. He didn't care about prestige. He didn't care about the religious establishment. His daughter was dead, and there were no resources within his system to deal with that. And I believe that God was already has already been working in his heart. Remember, one day Jesus had cast out a demon, out of, a demon from a man in the synagogue at Capernaum, and everyone there was stunned at Jesus' power and authority. Jairus would have been present that day. He would have seen Jesus' power and authority over the supernatural world with his own eyes. And now he says, come and lay your hand on her and she will live. That's real faith. He swallowed his pride. He turned his back on social pressure. He said goodbye to the religious establishment. And he came to Jesus and fell flat on his face in worship and says, my daughter has just died. He had a deep need. And that's why people come to Christ. If you don't have a need, you're not going to come. But when his daughter was dying and then died, he came in desperation. His motive wasn't totally pure. That is, he didn't come simply because of the wonder of Jesus Christ. He came because he was hurting and he was hurting deeply. The second thing that brought him to Jesus was his faith. He really did believe Jesus had the power to do this. And that's some kind of marvelous faith. Uh, it's incredible faith. How did Jesus respond to his need and his faith? I, I love this. The Greek says Jesus got up and followed him. He didn't say, well, hold on for a few minutes. I'm kind of busy with this big crowd right now. I'll get to you as soon as I can. No, he simply got up and followed him. Jesus was accessible to the crowd and he was available to the individual. Uh, he was willing to temporarily put a seemingly larger ministry aside in order to concentrate on one person. So Jesus and his disciples start going along with Jairus to his house so that, Jairus, so, so that Jesus can touch Jairus' daughter as Jairus has requested. But Mark tells us that a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. <coughs> so this mass of humanity <coughs> starts moving towards Jairus' house with this big crush of people surrounding Jesus and pressing in on him. And that brings us to the unexpected touch in verses 20 to 22. As Jesus is going to Jairus' house, his attention is called to still another single individual. And an interruption becomes an opportunity. There is a woman in the crowd who's been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years. Mark tells us that she had endured a lot of different treatments at the hands of several physicians without any success at all. And in fact, she had spent all of her money trying to find a cure. So she was now at a point of desperation. She's sick with a terrible condition and now impoverished. Nothing more could be done. And obviously, she had heard that Jesus was a great miracle worker and could heal people of the worst kinds of disease. And so she reasons, if I only touch his garment, I will get well. So this woman touches, comes up behind Jesus and touches his cloak in the middle of this huge crowd where everyone's crowding in on him and pressing up against him. And I told you before that the word Matthew uses here that's translated touch does not mean simply to lightly touch someone. It means to grab, to cling to. This woman made sure she got a good grab on the fringe of Jesus' cloak, on those blue tassels that identified him as a rabbi. Now, for 12 years, she had suffered 
with some kind of uterine disorder, probably caused by a fibroid tumor in a uterus, something that could be readily cured today by surgery. But in the Jewish culture, she was considered perpetually unclean, unable to be with others, unable to go to the temple, unable to go to synagogue. Dr. Luke tells us that she could not be healed by anyone. Her condition was incurable. So you can imagine what would happen to a woman in that culture who had a constant bleeding problem. She was cut off from or excommunicated from the synagogue. Her husband was allowed to divorce her, probably would have, and take the children away from her. And she would be ostracized by everyone in the community who knew of her situation. And so this dear woman had lived with that condition for 12 years. It's a tragic situation. And so she comes and she touches Jesus. Why? Same two reasons. She had a deep need and she believed that he could heal her. She was desperate. <clears throat> so she finally struggles through the crowd, grabs that tassel, and what happened? She was instantly healed. <clears throat> Mark's account in Mark 5 <clears throat> explains what occurred in much more detail. And in verse 27 of Mark 5, he says, After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, I will, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. So she was immediately healed. And it says that Jesus perceived that power was proceeding from him and had gone forth. And because he was, himself was fully God, he knew that that woman was going to touch him. He ordained that she would be healed. But in his humanity... He perceived the power, leave his body. And he turns and says, ask the question, who touched my garments? Now the disciples are incredulous that he would ask such a question. Luke tells us that uh, it was Peter who says to Jesus, Master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. You know, in other words, Lord, are you kidding that somebody touched you? And he goes on, he says, when the woman saw that he had not, she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. So she's scared to death. She's afraid that Jesus might be upset with her. But again, notice his words to us in our text here in Matthew. He says, daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. So she had faith, didn't she? She says, if I can just touch his tassel, you say, well, that's not exactly mature faith. That's almost superstition. It's almost like belief in magic. The le lesson to learn is that the Lord will take inadequate faith like this woman had that is somewhat superstitious and he'll move it from there to saving faith. Uh, there's much more to this woman's healing than simply her faith. Her healing was a sovereign act of God. Jesus healed multitudes of people who had no faith. But, uh, so I'm not convinced that this statement by Jesus has anything specific to do with her physical healing. Let me explain. You say, but Jesus, it says, Bruce, it says here that, that her faith made her well. I know. Uh, but in that statement, what Jesus says is your faith has saved you. The Greek word is sozo, uh, which means to save, to rescue. Uh, it's the common word used in the Greek New Testament to refer to salvation. 
so I think there's a redemptive element to her faith. She wanted to just grab onto his tassel with a faith that bordered on superstition, but she truly believed that he was such a great healer that if she only touched him, she would be healed. And Jesus wouldn't leave it just at that. He drew her out and he saved her. It's kind of like the man who said, I do believe, help my unbelief. Uh, in other words, take me from where I am with my little faith and move me all the way to saving faith. Yes. Uh, I've been witnessing to a, a woman that used to come and sit in the gym and do games. She was really good. And um, so I've been trying to share the gospel and saying, I just don't get it. Mm -hmm. I just don't get it. Yeah. So yeah. I'm praying. praying that the Lord grants her a little faith. She has another friend yeah. up there who's talking to her, and then we gave her a gospel of John, and her friend up there said, See, the Lord's putting you in specific yeah. places that you'll yeah. church. Yeah, well, you know, when the when the blind beggar Bartimaeus asked Jesus to restore his sight, Jesus replied, Go away, your faith has made you well. And again, the word is used there is in conjunction with Bartimaeus' faith. He, he has repeatedly called Jesus the son of David, which was a common title for the Messiah. So it seems probable that his being made well, like this woman with his hemorrhage, included spiritual salvation as well as physical healing. Now, let me show you one more example, and this is where we stopped last time. This is new. Turn over to Luke 7 for a moment. In Luke 7... Beginning at verse 37, we're told of a sinful woman, most likely a prostitute, who wept as she anointed Jesus' feet with perfume and wiped him with her hair. And Simon the Pharisee, who was hosting Jesus, observed this, and he began thinking, verse 39, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. So that causes Jesus, who read Simon's mind, to share a story with him about two men who owed varying amounts of money to another who forgave them both. And then he asked Simon who would love the man more, to which Simon replied accurately that it would be the man who was forgiven the greater debt. And then after commending this woman to Simon and explaining how she had honored Jesus and displayed her love for him, uh, far more than Simon had done. We come to verse 50, uh, where Jesus then turns to the woman and says, your faith has saved you, go in peace. In Greek, that phrase, your faith has saved you, is the exact same phrase that Jesus used with this woman with the hemorrhage and with blind Bartimaeus. Uh, and because there was no physical healing involved, in the incident with the prostitute, the clear indication is that the restoration Jesus is speaking about is entirely spiritual, particularly because he also told her that her sins were forgiven. So this phrase, your faith has saved you, carries much more meaning than simply indicating that the person was physically healed. It also implies spiritual healing. In the account of the 10 lepers who pleaded with Jesus to heal them in Luke 17, Luke reports that all 10 were cleansed. And he uses a word 
which means to be cleansed. But there is one man who glorified God in return to give thanks to Jesus, and it was to him that Jesus said, your faith has made you well. That is, your faith has saved you. Ten men were healed. Only one was saved. In his commentary on Matthew, John MacArthur makes this observation, quote, All of the renderings of made well and saved, which in each case the Lord himself specifically said resulted from the person's faith, come from the same Greek verb, sozo. That fact strongly implies that a redemptive aspect was involved in each of those incidents, end quote. So don't just pass over those words, your faith has made you well, and think, okay, she got healed. There's much more to that than appears to the eye. The two things that bring men and women to Jesus Christ are deep felt personal need and genuine faith. And this woman had both. The fact that Jesus ministered equally to the outcast woman and to the leading elder of the synagogue certainly reveals his divine impartiality. He was not offended by this woman taking hold of, this, of his tassel with her unclean hands. Uh, he did not resent her presuming to seek his help while he was surrounded by a demanding crowd and on his way to raise a young girl from her deathbed. No person in need ever interfered with Jesus' ministry because the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In contrast to the self-righteous Pharisee who he told, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners, he came to seek and save sinners who knew they were sinners. And such people have always been more likely to be the poor and insignificant of the world. Think about what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 28. It says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. Just think about that. In one sentence, Paul called you foolish, weak, base, despised, and nothing. All in one sentence. That's who we are. That's who we are. In their marvelous book, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. Paul, Dr. Paul Brand and Philip Yancey quote Frederick Beekner, an American novelist and Presbyterian minister, who had this to say about the people of God who were such an unlikely bunch. He writes this, quote, Who could have predicted that God would choose not Esau, the honest and reliable, but Jacob, the trickster and heel? that he would put the finger on Noah who hit the bottle, or on Moses who was trying to beat the rap in Midian for braining a man in Egypt. And if it weren't for the honor of the thing, he'd just as soon let Aaron go back and face the music, or the prophets who were a ragged lot, mad as hatters, most of them. And of course, there is the comedy, the unforeseeableness of the election itself. 
Of all the people he could have chosen to be his holy people, he chose the Jews, who is somebody or said to be like everybody else, only more so. More religious than anybody when they are religious. And when they are secular, being secular as if they'd invented it. And the comedy of the covenant, God saying, I will be your God and you shall be my people, to a people who, before the words had stopped ringing in their ears, were dancing around a golden calf like Aborigines and carrying on with every agricultural deity and fertility god that came down the pike, end quote. And then Brandon Yancey add this, quote, the exception seems to be the rule. The first humans God created went out and did the only thing God asked them not to do. The man he chose to head a new nation known as God's people tried to pawn off his wife on an unsuspecting pharaoh. And the wife herself, when told at the ripe old age of 91 that God was ready to deliver the son he had promised her, broke into rasping laughter in the face of God. Rahab, a harlot, became revered for her great faith. And Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, went out of his way to break every proverb he astutely composed. Even after Jesus came, the pattern continued. The two disciples who did most to spread his word after his departure, John and Peter, were the two he had rebuked most often for petty squabbling and muddle-headedness. And the Apostle Paul, who wrote more books than any other Bible writer, was selected for the task while kicking up dust swirls from town to town, sniffing out Christians to torture. Jesus had nerve in trusting the high-minded ideals of love and unity and fellowship to this group. No wonder cynics have looked at the church and sighed, if that group of people is supposed to represent God, I'll quickly vote against him. Or as Nietzsche expressed it, his disciples will have to look more saved if I'm to believe in their Savior. End quote. We are a motley crew, aren't we? The shameful, the weak, the foolish. But we all have this in common. We have a sense of desperate need and we have a faith to believe. So Jesus is impartial. As Peter said to Cornelius, God is not one to show partiality. So Galatians 3.28 says, There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither is there slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. And so Jesus pulls everything to a halt to deal with the outcast woman. He loved and cared for hurting people. How wonderful that God is more gracious than we are, right? God never excuses disobedience, unfaithfulness, or any other sin. But he will forgive every sin that is placed under the atoning death of his son. Position, prestige, and position, possessions give no advantage to anyone with him. And the lack of those things gives no disadvantage. In, in the book, A Night to Remember, Walter Lord tells us about the sinking of the Titanic in April of 1912. And when the news hit the New York American newspaper, which was famous newspaper at that time, the headline read, John Jacob Astor, Millionaire, Drowns. Now there were 15, there was 1,516 other people who also drowned. But he's the only one the world singled out. Only the rich and the famous get the press. Not so with Jesus Christ. If you learn anything from this miracle, don't merely learn how powerful he is. 
but also learn how accessible, how available, how touchable and impartial he is. That's how it is with God, and that's how it should be with those of us who represent him. So then, so far we've seen the requested touch and the unexpected touch. That brings us finally to the re resurrecting touch. Let's read verses 23 to 26. When Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder, he said, Leave, for the girl has not died but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. This news spread throughout all that land. It's Jesus' power that most uniquely sets him apart from all others. Uh, we might have some of his other character qualities of love and kindness and graciousness and being accessible and available to others, but we cannot perform miracles of healing lepers and restoring uh, paralyzed limbs and blind eyes or casting out demons and raising the dead. So his touch is uniquely powerful. Now the interlude with the woman with the hemorrhage had taken long enough that by the time he arrived at Jairus' home, all kinds of things were taking place there. The end of verse 23 says, he saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder. Now you might be wondering, what in the world is this? What's all this racket? I mean, in our culture, if you go to a funeral home for a funeral, it's so quiet in there. Uh, everyone goes around speaking in hushed tones, and they have organ music playing. It's rather morbid, to say the least. Uh, but in that culture, those who had assets would hire professional mourners and musicians who would come and wail loudly and play loud, dissonant music. Uh, a funeral was not a time for soft whispers and soothing music. It was a time of great noise and disorder. Now, in Jewish tradition, there were three prescribed ways of expressing grief and lamentation. First, there was the rending of garments. You were supposed to tear your clothing. That was symbolic of your grief. And the Talmud included 39 different rules and regulations on how to rip your clothes. Okay? You had to do it while you were standing up. You had to do it over your heart or near your heart. If you were not the mother or the father, it could be anywhere else. But if you were the mother or father, it had to be right over your heart. Uh, and you had to rip it big enough to stick your fist through. Uh, and then you had to leave the rip for seven days. Then for the next 30 days, you could stitch it uh, up with big stitches, but you couldn't sew it up permanently so people would know that you still felt bad. And in order for women not to expose themselves in an immodest manner by ripping their clothes, they would rip their undergarment and then wear it backwards. Uh, so that's where it all began, with everyone ripping their clothes. And I've told you before that the professional mourners had clothing that they wore just for the occasion that was sewn loosely so that it ripped easily and could then be re-sewn back for the next time they were hired to mourn. And so they were all in there tearing their clothes. Okay, The second way to express grief 
was by wailing. And there were women who were professional wailers who would come and begin to wail the name of the person who had just died. And then they, they would gather some of the family history so that they could call out the names of other family members who had died previously in that family. So it was just adding sorrows upon sorrows to the situation. And they would all wail and shriek and scream and make all kinds of racket. The third way they grieved was to have professional musicians, most often flute players, present. They had various kinds of flutes that made different sounds, and they played a very dissonant type of music. The Talmud declared that the husband is bound to bury his dead wife and to make lamentations in mourning for her according to the custom of all countries. Uh, and also the very poorest among the Israelites will not allow her less than two flutes and one wailing woman. So even if you were living in abject poverty, you were still expected to hire one wailing woman and two flute players. Okay? If you were wealthy, the Talmud said that the number of wailing women and flute players should be in accordance with your wealth. Uh, in fact, is that me? That's me. I didn't know I had my phone on. Uh, the, Roman, the Roman world did the same thing. Uh, the Roman statesman Seneca wrote that there were so many flute players praying and so much screaming and wailing at the death of the Emperor Claudius that some onlookers felt that Claudius himself probably heard it even though he was dead. <laughs> so this is the daughter of Jairus, the, the senior leader of the synagogue who was probably quite wealthy. So the place is filled with flute players and women shrieking and wailing and people ripping their clothes and beating their chest. You can imagine what kind of a mess it was. <clears throat> and that was a typical funeral during those times. Jesus saw the musicians and the people making all this noise. In verse 24, he says, leave for the girl has not died, but is asleep. And at that point, it says they began laughing at him. <coughs> you see, these people knew when someone was dead. They saw death up close and personal far more often than we do today. Uh, they knew when someone was actually dead. And so they are thinking, this guy is nuts. This girl's dead. Doesn't he know that? And they laugh at him with the hard, haughty, mocking laughter of those who gloat over a foolish act or statement by someone to whom they felt superior. It's a scorning, ridiculing laughter. Of course, Jesus knows she's dead, but he knows he's going to raise her from the dead. So what he says is you can't treat her death as death. You must treat it as sleep because it's so temporary. That's what he's saying. You have to treat her as if she's just asleep. And the implication is she's only sleeping because I'm going to raise her from the dead. He's going to wake her up. By the way, just as a side note, that has implications for us, doesn't it? Where it talks about in 1 Thessalonians 4, that uh, about those who are asleep, who are our Christian brothers and sisters, we treat them as though they're asleep because it's temporary. They're getting up one day. Okay? 
And so they mock him face to his, to his face with derisive laughter. It's the kind of laughter that's reserved for mocking a fool. Only a fool would think that he could raise her from the dead. They're from around Capernaum, so they'd seen other miracles, but they still didn't believe. So he orders them all out. And when they left, verse 25 says, He entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. Now that's where I would like to go to Mark's account in Mark 5, verses 40 to 42. Because it gives us a little more detail. Mark 5, 40 to 42. It says that Jesus took along the child's mother and father and mother and his own companions, those would have been some of his disciples, and entered the room where the child was. And then, taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Telitha kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old, and immediately they were completely astounded. Now, this is a very special miracle for me and Marcia personally, because this is where one of our granddaughters got her name. Uh, her name is Talitha, just slight change on the pronunciation. In Aramaic, it's Talitha, but it's Aramaic for little girl. Her name, our granddaughter's name was chosen because her mother had three or four miscarriages before her, was told she could never have children. So they adopted a little baby girl at birth and they named her Talitha because she ex represented life that came to them after multiple deaths. Uh, Luke 8:55 tells us, and her spirit returned. That means that she was truly dead and her spirit came to her again and she got up. You know, think about this. Jesus didn't have to touch that little girl, did he? He could have just reached out his hand over. He didn't have to reach out his hand to her. He could have just passed it over. He could have just spoken the words, Talithakum. But that is the way of God to be tender and affectionate and loving and gentle. So he raised her with a touch of resurrection and raised her back to life. Mark tells us that this little girl's parents were completely astounded. I'm sure they were. Uh, this was a miracle like none of the others they had seen. And then Mark goes on to say that Jesus gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. But like his other miracles in which he told people to keep silent about it, they couldn't keep their mouths shut. Because going back to Matthew 9:26, it says this news spread throughout all that land. And you know what they said about him? They said, he has power over disease. He has power over disorders. He has power over death. He can forgive sin. But most of them still didn't believe that message. But a few did. Some did. And they recognized Jesus as the Messiah. And so Matthew reaches a pinnacle in his presentation of Jesus as the Messiah King. In Revelation 1.18, the glorified Christ told John, it I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Folks, we have no need to fear death, none at all. Poet John Mason Neal wrote a hymn in which he expressed it this way. No longer must the mourners weep nor call departed Christians dead for death is hallowed into sleep and every grave becomes a bed. Mm -hmm. 
as a young man, D.L. Moody was called upon to preach a funeral sermon. And he decided that he would go through the Gospels to try to find one of Christ's funeral sermons. But he searched in vain. Uh, he found every time Jesus attended a funeral, he broke it up by raising the person from the dead. And so he never gave a funeral sermon. And when the dead heard his voice, they immediately sprang to life. We should rejoice in death because we have conquered death. I'm not saying that you should behave in a gleeful, silly manner at the death of your loved ones. Of course you'll sorrow. But as a believer, the apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 that you have no reason to grieve as those who have no hope. Why not? Because if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. He will bring them back with him when he comes for his church at the rapture. And then he goes on to say, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Those are very comforting words, aren't they? Arthur Brisbane, famous newspaper editor of the earliest early 20th century, pictured the funeral of a Christian as a crowd of grieving caterpillars, all wearing black suits. And all these caterpillars are crawling around mourning, and they're carrying the corpse of a cocoon to its final resting place. And as these poor distressed caterpillars crawl along weeping, above them fluttering around is an incredibly beautiful butterfly looking down in utter disbelief. Christ alone is our hope. Death can strike God's saints in unexpected, painful, and seemingly senseless ways. We just saw that with the death of little Lila Goody. Yet God does not promise to give explanations for such tragedies. Instead, Jesus gave a wonderful assurance to Martha just before he raised Lazarus. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. I trust that all of you have trusted Christ so that you too will live even though you die. Because when you die, you will be raised again by the resurrection power of Jesus, just like that little girl, Jairus' daughter, Talitha was all those years ago and that brings us to the end of this passage and there's no way that i'm going to start the next section questions you know and, and going over this story you kind of repeated several times that the people prayed and then they were shocked when their prayers were answered yeah <laughs> yeah yeah they come to him believing having faith that he can do it but then when he does it it's like yeah. wow <laughs> Yeah, we do the exact same thing. Yeah. 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 Anything, uh, Richard? 
I'm assuming that the, uh, uh, the mourners were in place so quickly uh, because of the requirement to get people buried within yeah. 24 hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And especially because they knew she was dying, I'm sure that there was some staging because they knew she was dying. So they were getting ready. And then she died. Uh, so anything else? All right. I will close in prayer, and then you can all go up there and go through the new doors and eat lots of donuts. All right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement that we see in this, that death is, for the believer, is not death. It is merely, merely waiting for your return. When you come back uh, with us, those who have died, you bring them back to meet your saints in the air. Lord, we, we look forward so much to your return. We thank you for the promise of the resurrection. And Lord, we pray now as we go to the service that you, we would all be uh, praising you, lifting up voices of praise, and then listening as your word is taught and instructing us, and that we would apply the truths in our life. These things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.